0: Moses dies and Joshua leads them into what is called the promised land. Now that promised land of Canaan, uh, was not empty. And this is an important part of this. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're coworkers.
1: He's the boss and we're married.
2: And she's the boss. Together. We host good faith weekly, a podcast on faith and culture.
1: What could possibly go wrong?
2: Tune in and find out. Oh, f- Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I sat down with Dr. George Mason to discuss the events unfolding over in the Middle East. It's going to be an extended interview with Dr. Mason, and I think you're really, really going to enjoy it. It's going to be a really, really good pod, so stay tuned. Hey there, Missy. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. How about you?
1: I'm doing all right.
2: Well, we're going to do things a little different on today's episode. I'll allow it. I appreciate that. <laughs> this week, we had the opportunity to talk with one of our dear friends and mentors, Reverend Dr. George Mason, on what's going on in the Middle East. We did. And while we knew the conversation was going to be absolutely great, we ended up getting a master class pertaining to the situation.
1: You're so right. We just were really blown away by the depth and breadth of knowledge and insight that George was able to communicate while really covering such an expanse. Uh, time in history
2: you're absolutely right so we decided that after talking with George we're going to do things a little different and cut the intro short
1: that's right less of us and more of
2: George you got it so ladies and gentlemen stay tuned coming up next is Reverend Dr. George Mason I've always been struck by the scriptures we avoid reading the stories we don't want to tell in church I'm Brett Harris, and that's what you've never read this a new series from God Knows Where is all about. We'll read from prophets and histories we've hidden from ourselves, even words of wisdom and warning from Jesus that we've likely never heard. As with everything we do here, God knows where this will lead us, but I hope you'll join me. Find God Knows Where on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us. The Reverend Dr. George A. Mason is the founder and president of Faith Commons and the senior pastor emeritus at Wilshire Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. He is a nationally recognized religious leader whose legacy includes innovation in clergy, apprenticeship, interfaith initiatives, and community service. Faith Commons is an interfaith nonprofit organization that amplifies diverse faith voices for the common good. Its programs include Georgia's podcast, Good God, featuring conversations about faith and public life. Dr. Mason was recently in Israel when Hamas attacked Israeli citizens, killing more than 1,400 people. After several unnerving days, he has returned to the United States. His work within the interfaith community gives him a unique perspective on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. George, welcome to Good Faith
0: Weekly. Well, thanks so much, Mitch and Missy, and i delighted to be back with you, uh, even if the circumstances are uh, painful and difficult for us all. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Well, you know, believe it or not, George, when the news broke uh, regarding the Hamas attack there in Israel, I I had no idea. I'm sorry, I had no idea that you were in Israel. But then it became very apparent that you were there, and uh, we were immediately uh, worried about you and others. I know that you were there with some other clergy as well. But tell us a little bit about what you were doing there and kind of how that day unfolded for you.
0: Well, to begin with, I was in West Jerusalem hotel when the attacks began, I had been there for uh, two nights uh, and uh, was awaiting a group uh, that was coming over to join me uh, that faith commons had put together. We were about to engage in a dual narrative tour uh, where we were going to go around Israel and Palestine uh, meeting with uh Israeli Jews and uh, Israeli Arabs and Palestinian uh, Christians and Muslims, uh, who were who are working together in various projects and settings uh, around the Holy Land to bring people together, to bridge differences, to create understanding, to lay uh, the the groundwork for peace. Uh, to, to to begin to think together about what coexistence might look like after occupation, mm. uh, after the troubles, uh, so to speak. And so much of what we were doing was not, not preparing to have a uh, Disneyland tour of the Holy Land, right. you know, yeah, with just – uh, going to Christian sites and reading Bible verses but rather uh, talking to the living stones the, the the people who are there on the ground uh, who wrestle with uh history and uh animosities and uh and, and struggle for how to live together in the in that place mm-hmm. uh, regardless of what the politics are it was about the people. Uh, We thought that that trip uh, would be a way of uh, engaging in a crucible of conflict that would help reflect uh, back upon the challenges of polarization that we experience in the United States uh, and how our politics has been moving ever increasingly uh, toward these kinds of differences and how needed it is to have these uh, islands of uh, hope Uh, in the midst of the chaos where people were finding ways to find each other. Mm. So I I was there awaiting that. uh, But I should go further and tell you that the reason I was waiting for them is that I had spent four full days uh, prior to that in Bethlehem, in the West Bank, Mm -hmm. the occupied territory. Um, This uh, was a conference Uh, on uh, Palestinian land, people, and culture that brought more than 200 people together from 25 countries uh, to uh, deliver papers, uh, have panel discussions about the plight of the Palestinians and uh, the resistance to Israeli occupation and the hope of self-determination Questions of identity, of uh, of how they might uh, increasingly find ways in a nonviolent way to envision envision a future, and so this was uh, this just filled me with all sorts of information and experience from the Palestinian point of view, and then I'm sitting in this West Jerusalem hotel in Israel proper, and then Hamas. Uh, began to, uh, attack Israel and everything changed instantly. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, after those, I mean, after the news started to break, I mean, you, I mean, you're right there. Um, just kind of walk us through what happened when you heard the news, um, you know, what was going on on the ground there in Israel, because I mean, it just, I mean, this is a large scale
0: attack. It caught Israel by surprise and it punctured their sense of invulnerability. Um, Israel has for at least 56 years since, uh, the 1967 six day war, uh, they have uh, had a sense that they could secure, uh, Israel through military strength and by uh, marginalizing the Palestinians uh, in a police state occupation uh, and uh, using Israeli intelligence to know what was going on with the resistance and opposition. Uh, And in fact, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of of Israel, uh, has uh, had a strategy of strengthening Hamas, uh, weirdly, uh in a way that would allow the israeli population to know that palestinians were not interested in a two state solution and a peaceful resolution of their problems because as long as hamas was strong and its aim was to completely eliminate uh israel obliterate them and 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 drive them into the sea once and for all well then he he had the moral capital with Israelis to say we cannot negotiate with Palestinians. So this is one of the great ironies of this whole thing. Wow. It backfired badly. Yeah, and so is Israelis had an immediate sense of trauma uh, that wait a minute how could this possibly happen? We thought we had a a, a seventeen year embargo of. land, sea, and air in Gaza and a barrier of security that would protect Israel from them leaving that place. And they breached those barriers and came marauding into 22 nearby villages and two Kibbutzim uh, and began to savagely uh, assassinate people, just murder them, including, including elderly and women and children, this is, was almost inconceivable. And what's interesting is for the first couple of hours, most Israelis did not know exactly what was happening because there, there is a frequent skirmishing that happens in Gaza with uh, bombs that are lobbed from Hamas into Israel that are you, that usually don't land because Israel's iron dome that we've essentially paid for in the United States, uh, three million dollars per uh, anti-missile rockets, uh, just they knock them out before they can land. And so everyone thought, oh, this is no big deal. This is just business as usual. It's just annoyance. Well, no, this was a massive attack that was well planned and strategically done. And uh, it it took everyone by surprise that they had the level of ammunition and sophistication that they had. And then, of course, the level of inhumanity and brutality that transgressed every sense of uh, uh, human Decency. Wow.
1: So, George, we had the opportunity to spend some time with you last weekend and had just a really wonderful organic conversation, one of those back patio type of conversations about the situation. And I so appreciated what you said. And I, I had asked you a question in the course of that. Just hey, Define Zionism for me. It's one of these terms that gets thrown around all of your life, especially if you grew up um, in, in church as we did, and you think you have an understanding, and then when a situation comes up like this, and there's so many layers to it, you start questioning, wait a minute, what is this actually? So I'm going to ask you for a minute um, to share a little bit of that with our, our listeners, but also just take us back kind of to Sunday School 101 and build the foundation for what brought us here? I know that's very difficult because, well, to do.
2: We hear that term a lot uh, over the last couple of weeks, just in the news.
1: Right, right. But just kind of in how it's yeah. wrapped up within times theology. Just give it, give us a, a an overview of what we need to know to kind of understand the broader scope of what's going on.
0: Thank you for asking that question. So, <clears throat> let's let's begin with the fact that we have terminology that uh, I'm going to use two terms. One is Israel, and the other is Zionism. There are many definitions of what is Israel, and I think we need to be careful to distinguish them. So the original definition of Israel uh, goes back to the biblical account of uh, Jacob, one of the patriarchs, who in uh, a night of wrestling with God uh, has uh, prevailed and uh, is his name is changed in this story in Genesis uh, from Jacob, uh, the usurper, uh, the grabber, to Israel, the one who has struggled with God and prevailed. Okay, so uh, then and Jacob, of course, has 12 sons. And they, this becomes the house of Israel, the people of Israel, who end up then eventually because of the story, you know, of the jealousy of the brothers with Joseph. Uh, they finally end up in Egypt where over time they become a captive to the Pharaoh and the Egyptians having multiplied. And this then becomes the story of the Exodus finally, uh, when, uh, Moses leads them out of captivity and the children of Israel uh, move through the wilderness, they become a covenant people, they receive the law of God, and begin to form a sense of identity that is a family ethnic identity on the one hand, but is now also a religious identity uh, formed around a law and uh, practices. And they eventually uh, come to the edge of the Jordan River on the um, the east bank uh, of the Jordan, uh, modern day Jordan. And Moses dies and Joshua leads them into what is called the promised land. Now that promised land of Canaan uh, was not empty. And this is an important part of this. So just as when, uh, Mitch will be quick to tell you, when uh, Columbus so-called discovered America and when uh, the pilgrims made their way finally to America, and uh, this was not an empty land. There were indigenous peoples here. And that is not a story that... Some people want to tell about American history. Similarly, uh, the Bible tells us the story of uh, of the Israelites going into Canaan and conquering Canaan and the peoples there who were uh, a pagan people who worshipped other gods. And you know that this is. An important thing to recognize, because eventually Israel becomes then a nation. That is, they become a nation like every other. They have a king. This was uh, questionable originally, but it is what um, you know they uh, they did. And so the first the United Monarchy of Saul, David, and Solomon, and then the divided monarchy of the northern kingdom of Israel or Ephraim and the southern kingdom of Judah until the Assyrians uh, took over the northern kingdom and the Babylonians, the southern kingdom, and they were were in exile. They eventually come back from the Babylonian captivity uh, and uh, establish uh, the kingdom again for a period of time. Uh, But again, then they are overrun first by the Greeks uh, and then by the Romans, and ultimately are scattered uh, again in uh, AD 90, well, AD 70, and reconstitute uh, it, it with the, the formation of rabbinic Judaism in the year about 90, uh, uh, in the Common Era. But essentially, after that, um, you know, these exiles, the, the Jews are spread out all through the world, and they have no homeland. So now they are a covenant people that is called Israel. Uh, after the formation of rabbinic Judaism, they, they are the Jews, wherever they are. But they are in diaspora. That is, they're everywhere in the world. Uh, that diaspora takes them uh, to especially Eastern Europe, and uh where uh, we have what's called pogroms, that is in uh the area of modern day Ukraine uh and uh Russia and Poland and Germany and the like, pogroms being sort of mini genocides of the uh regional Jewish people. Uh they were scapegoated by uh the predominant authorities. Uh, anytime that things went wrong with the economy, it was the Jews, and so they continually were raped and murdered and driven from uh, their their land, uh, and so they were a, a wandering people. And then, of course, the six million that died during World War II in the Holocaust mm-hmm. were, um, you know, part of this problem. Now, Israel then becomes a nation in 1948. But the nation state that is Israel is not identical with the nation of Israel that was in the 8th century B.C. uh, and forward. What is consistent is the name Israel, and it stands for this long history, that it is predominantly a Jewish state. It is trying it has been trying since 1948 to be both a jewish state and a democracy those two things being difficult to hold together Mm -hmm. but nonetheless i will simply say this is where this merges with zionism Uh, because of the holocaust uh, there was a longing for one place in the world where jews could feel safe uh they had felt uh unsafe and uh, victimized by violence everywhere they had been. Uh, Many had come to the United States seeking religious freedom, uh, but uh, even here, anti-Semitism was uh, rampant. And so after the formation of the State of Israel in 1948, these 75 years have created an environment in which the language and culture of Jews could dominate a society and people could feel at home in the world if they were Jewish. Mm -hmm. The first time they could feel at home in the world since, well, the 8th century BC, I would say. Uh, And so this has been the fulfillment of a longing of Jews. Zion is a language that pertains to Uh, Mount Zion, which is a a cipher essentially for Jerusalem and the place of worship there. Um, And so it, it stands for a location, but it also stands for a longing, a sense of being in a place where one belongs and is at home in the world. So this sense of longing, this Zionism, had been building in the hearts and minds of Jews, especially in uh, Eastern Europe, uh, f- back uh, even before World War One, uh, in in the late 19th century, and uh, it gained momentum uh, after World War One uh, with the Balfour Declaration in 1917 uh, and the British mandate that uh, essentially promised Palestinians a state and a homeland, and Jews, that they could have a state in uh, the only place in the world that made sense for them to be at home because of the history. Uh, This uh, was then ruled by the British for all those years, but there was an influx. There were many influxes of Jews to the Middle East, to this piece of property. That is about the size of New Jersey, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and yet when Jews started coming back, they found that just as in the days of Joshua, there were already people here.
2: Right. Um,
0: well, well, who were those people? Well, they were they were Palestinians. They were people who were living there. Did they have a nation called Palestine? Not really. They simply lived on that land in a way that is not dissimilar Mitch, again right. to the way native americans would describe the way they lived on the land mm-hmm. well did they have a nation well they had they had many nations they had tribes they had, they were peoples they lived they didn't they didn't possess the land the land possessed them mm-hmm. they they lived on the land and by the land but they didn't have this notion of owning it they simply lived in villages and communities and uh they were, they were people, but they didn't. They didn't have an identity that was forced upon them uh, until it was forced upon them to begin to say, "Okay, we are actually Palestinians, and we therefore are, you know, like the Jews." Well, they were Palestinian Christians. They were Palestinian Muslims. Uh, they they didn't have the same uh, notion of ethnicity, because they would intermarry with the Lebanese and with the Syrians and with the Cyprians and and the Egyptians. And for Palestinians, this is no big deal. This is just uh, life. You just bring them into the family and they're Mm -hmm. all, you know, Arabs or of some sort. No big deal. For Jews, it was much more defined. What is a Jew? Well, was your mother a Jew? You know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so these are the conflicts. When finally, you know, the Jews started arriving, this became an unsettling thing for the Palestinians who existed there. And this movement called Zionism uh was uh was a threat to them because it had this sense that they had a right, Jews had a right to live there. And the question is, by whose authority do they have that right to live in a place where we have lived? Mm-hmm and never left. Right. And Jews would appeal to the Bible. Some would appeal to divine right from the Bible. This is, you know, the way different people read the Bible. Some would just appeal to the Bible as history and say, well, we know that this is the only place that was ever a homeland to Jews. And others would say, uh, call themselves Zionists as well, simply by saying, uh, There is uh, no other place in the world that Jews could have ever felt at home. And we have history and a longing that we have always uh, practiced in our Passover seders next year in Jerusalem, next year in Jerusalem, next year in Jerusalem. And now let's get home. Let's go home. Mm -hmm. So Zionism uh, can be simply about historical necessity for safety and security of a people or it can be viewed as a divine right from the Bible. Now, that's the Jewish perspective. Uh, This gets complicated. I'm sorry, I'm just hardly taking a breath. I hope this is okay. No, this is fantastic. I'm riveted. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. So this gets complicated by evangelical Christians, because there is not just Zionism per se, where someone like myself as a Christian could say, I could call myself a Zionist, Uh, because I see that there is a um, legitimate longing of Jews to be at home in the Middle East. Uh, But I would not call myself a Christian Zionist. Christian Zionism is a very specific language that grows out of, uh, it starts with the Plymouth Brethren, uh, even has earlier roots, but John Nelson Darby in uh, the middle of the, 19th century, uh, who influenced, who, by the way, among his parishioners in the Plymouth Brethren were Lord Arthur Balfour uh, of the Balfour Declaration Mm -hmm. and others who believe that uh, the Bible was uh, created uh, with secrets in it uh, that could be discerned. And this is ultimately. Premillennial dispensationalism, yeah. <laughs> which comes to the United States and is popularized by C.I. Schofield and the Schofield Bible, and Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas, and the Bible churches begin to promote this understanding of the Bible, uh, in which ultimately there is an end times view of things that says that Christians are going to be raptured from the earth, but only after certain things take place, including Jews returning to the land of Israel, driving out the inhabitants, rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, and then finally, Christians can be raptured, and a seven-year tribu- tribulation will come to pass, which will ultimately lead to the return, the physical return of Jesus on the Mount of Olives, and the beginning of a millennial period. Well, these are all. Uh, this is all American Christian Zionism, and people like John Hagee from uh, uh, San Antonio. And ultimately now, many Southern Baptists and almost all TV preachers have this sort of end times theology that takes the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other and begins to identify what God is doing in the Middle East and sees this as a matter of prophecy. Uh, using the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation to show who's who and this sort of thing. Well, this is incredibly difficult because, first of all, it it has gone beyond the walls of churches and now has infected the the corridors of power in Washington and elsewhere. You have people, for instance, in the Trump administration, like Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who is both a Christian nationalist when it comes to American politics and also a Christian Zionist when it comes to international affairs, specifically related to the Middle East. And that Middle East politics is not just about Israel and Palestinians, but the whole of the region of the Middle East, which means Iran and Iraq and Saudi Arabia and, and Lebanon and Syria and, and all of these areas, Jordan that are involved in this that must comport with his vision, uh, this Christian Zionist vision about what must unfold in the Middle East. Uh, the people who most influenced Donald Trump. They all believed that uh, Israel had to be blessed by the United States, or else we would not be blessed as a nation, and that meant we give a basic a blank check to the Israeli government to do anything they need to do, and we have therefore supported uh, tacitly, or um, not so tacitly, but you know uh, through military uh, spending and all of that the the occupation of palestinian territories and the repression of palestinian uh, freedom and statehood which includes palestinian christians who christian nationalists basically ignore because they're supporting the jews in israel and the Pal- and the israeli government thinking that ultimately some sacrifices have to be made And the Palestinians are the sacrifices that will be made in order for uh, God's uh, plan of history to work out. And Palestinian Christians are saying, how can we be your brothers and sisters here? Have never left. We're sitting here in Bethlehem where Jesus was born, and you will not support your brothers and sisters who are being persecuted and killed by the Israeli government, and you're supporting the policies of occupation. How can this possibly be in the body of Christ? And so, Christian nationalism is an enormous pro- Christian Zionism, rather, is an enormous problem uh, that needs to be addressed by the Christian community. It is a way of reading the Bible that is, uh, in my mind, incredibly faulty, incredibly dangerous, and uh, and violates the primary command that we love our neighbor as ourselves so uh, i think zionism per se is not the problem uh, unless zionism means jews and not palestinians then it's a problem you can be a zionist and believe in palestinian autonomy and statehood uh, but christian zionism does not allow for that
2: That was absolutely incredible! Wow, <laughs> thank I'm you glad so I much came for to that. your TED
1: talk. That
2: was <laughs> <laughs> yeah, story. thanks, George. That was really, really insightful and informative. And uh, just to clarify, you talked about Pompeo uh, and his Christian nationalism. He's also a Christian Zionist, right? And are those are those the same thing, or they kind of overlap one another?
0: Right. So let's distinguish between them and say that they are almost always on the Venn diagram Mm -hmm. overlapping, but they can be distinguished. Mm -hmm. A Christian nationalist is specifically language that could apply in whatever nation you are living in. Uh, For instance, there is Christian nationalism in Hungary right now uh, with uh, Orban, who is... uh, the president or whatever there. Uh, And and there is Christian nationalism in Russia right now under the Russian Orthodox church with uh, Putin. And there's Christian nationalism in the United States. And the idea of this is that Christians have been ordained by God in whatever nation they may be in to, um, (coughs) to exercise authority in that nation on behalf of God. And uh, some versions of that include what's known as dominion theology or seven mountains theology in which there are seven mountains of government, uh, of business, culture, and the arts, education, uh, these sorts of things. There are seven areas of reality that need to be, uh, have key figures in charge of them they should all be christians of a conservative bent and that once all those uh, positions of authority are filled by uh, conservative christians then god will bless the nation Uh, well this is contrary of course to our american history of religious liberty and religious pluralism and the separation of church and state and instead that is viewed as a, um, uh, an unfaithful position uh, that threatens Christian existence. And so Christian nationalists always feel that they are being victimized in some way by secular culture, uh, by non-Christian forces that they are always the being beaten up on but they are always assuming that they are supposed to be in charge mm-hmm. and that somehow people are not letting them do what God has designed for them to do. That is be in charge. So if, if they're questioned, they're victims. Yeah. So this is, this is a problem of Christian nationalism. Uh, and it's true in every country. Uh, and they will, and it's rooted in the idea of exercising power, mm-hmm. Christian mm-hmm. Christians exercising power over everyone else and in their minds for the good. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't always feel good to those who are powerless at the hands of those Christians who are nationalists. So uh, that's, that's kind of what Christian nationalism is. It merges with Christian Zionism when you see them supporting a vision of what's happening in Israel. So Israel and Palestine is where Christian Zionism is concerned. But uh, the the idea ultimately there is that things are supposed to go well for Jews until they don't. Mm-hmm. That is, uh, the only way Christians finally get raptured and are able to go to heaven is for Jews to get the promised land finally for themselves, but only for a period of time, after which, until unless they do not convert and confess Jesus as Lord, they will go to hell. So, this is a, the 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 theology of Christian Zionism. It sounds like they are blessing Israel and the Jews and supporting them, but it's still within the framework of. Christian theology that does not see them having any future beyond a temporary reprieve during which time they must convert or else they have no future.
1: It seems like in your explanations, the Christians are using the Jews to ultimately get where they want to be.
2: Yeah, that's That's correct. George, that was excellent. Now I'm going to ask you to put your pastoral hat on. And as a Christian minister committed to promoting interfaith work, what do you recommend to those of us who have friends who feel strongly on both sides of this conflict? Because to be honest with you, sometimes it feels like I'm turning my back on one friend to console another.
0: There is room to console uh, and show compassion and suffer alongside everyone at this moment you should not have to choose teams in human suffering. So when I'm with a Jew, it's not for me in that moment, I think, to say, I'm sorry for your suffering, but you need to feel sorry also for Palestinians. In that moment, we simply sit with them and legitimately share in their pain and console them because their suffering is real and has roots that are deep and painful, and there are, for Jews, there is a kind of existential feeling always that our continued existence is is hanging in the balance. There is no historical necessity that Israel, that has been a state for 75 years, will remain such. And so, and Jews do not know whether they will ever uh, perish from the earth. There are those who wish them to do so. And so I think we should just simply acknowledge that for Christians, we do not know what that feels like most of the time. And we should listen and we should share in their pain. When we are with Palestinians, Muslims, Arabs, Generally, uh, and hear the anguish of what it's like to feel abandoned, to feel as if the U.S. government has been supporting the violence against them, and the fear of compassion toward uh, toward their plight when we are supposed to always be about human rights and freedom. Well, for everyone except Palestinians, it seems. Then. We need to hear their cries. We need to recognize their pain and, uh, and not demand that before we do, they somehow uh, condemn Hamas and its attacks. Because if we would do that, then we should say, well, before we can be sympathetic toward the Israeli pain, we need to hear you condemn the occupation and the settler movement in the West Bank and the violence against Palestinians by uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews and the like. No, no, we th- this is just in the pain with people. And don't do whataboutism all the time. Right. Uh, there, there is, there, it, it, you don't have to choose sides. You can be on the side of both. And that that is not a cop-out position. Now it can be, there can be people who simply say, "Look, everybody's bad, and I, you know, th- there's no way to distinguish here." No, we can be careful and hearing the stories and all of that, but but we don't have to. We don't have to decide that one person's suffering is greater than another. Uh, I, I think it's it's better for us simply to stand alongside, listen, and then we find that there are remarkable people in the Jewish community that are unwilling to defend Israel by ignoring the plight of the Palestinians. My partner, Rabbi Nancy Kasten in Faith Commons, has taken lots of heat from her Jewish friends and felt even unsafe during this period because she attended an all-in-for-Palestine rally in Dallas at Dallas City Hall and spoke uh, to the news media about the plight of the Palestinians at the same time that Jews were grieving the the death of 1,400 people at the hands of Hamas. Mm -hmm. She was able to say uh, that my Jewish values require that I stand alongside the suffering, whoever they are. Similarly, when Palestinians in all of their pain recognize that loss of innocent life and say, uh, that we are um, that we are praying for and suffering alongside those uh, Israeli families who have lost their lives. That is a powerful witness. Uh, when when Palestinians in this moment, where the disproportionate retaliation of the Israeli military in Gaza has now taken uh, more than eight thousand lives, more than three thousand of which are children. Uh, when we hear Israelis say that until until there is freedom for Palestinians, we will never be out of this conflict. Uh, that that killing Hamas and all these civilians is not going to be the answer. Well, that's a remarkable witness as well. Mm. So I, I think I think we can do both things. Look, this is the problem of the fog of war, and that is you're supposed to choose sides.
2: Yeah,
0: uh, it's got to be one or the other, and. Uh, you can't see it on the audio version. I deliberately chose to wear a gray shirt today um, mm-hmm. because I think we need a gray movement uh, in this. And that's not about old people. It's about nuance. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's about recognizing that there's lots of grays in this and uh, trying to understand them better.
2: Well, George, I was a young minister in Dallas, Texas, or actually Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas, uh, back in 20. Uh, 2001 after 9-11. And I remember distinctively thinking, I wanted to hear what you had to say after that fateful day. And you always deliver, my friend. Thank you so much for stepping in and not only being a mentor, but being a friend and being a pastor to me. Uh, and to many others who are listening. We really appreciate your words and your wisdom. And you can find out more about George's work at Faith Commons at faithcommons.org. But George, before we let you go, we've got one last question that we ask every guest, and you have answered this question before. So I'm going to turn it over to Missy.
1: So George, again, let me echo Mitch's words. This was wonderful. I'm so thankful this worked out for us to talk to you this week, and I appreciate all of your wisdom, your pastoral care, um, throughout the years and especially today. So, so George, as you know, our tagline at good faith media is there's more to tell. So in light of your work in our conversation today, what is your more to tell
0: that we don't know what is more to know, uh, yet. And that therefore we have to keep our minds and our ears and our hearts open, uh, because in this conflict, is a perfect uh, time to recognize that that we never have enough information. We never have enough stories to tell it in one way that concludes uh, the, the conversation that solves the problem, uh, that there is more to tell because there are, there is no end of people in their lived experiences who have stories to tell. So let, let's listen. I love that. Perfect. George
2: Mason, thanks. As always, you are a dear friend to Good Faith Media and a dear friend to this
0: pod. We wish you the very best. Thank you so much, Mitch and Missy. And uh, we're grateful for you as well.
2: Missy, that was an incredible conversation that we just had with George.
1: Absolutely. I was not anticipating getting quite that much information I am so glad that we did. That was fantastic.
2: And we decided that there's really nothing that we can add to the conversation that wouldn't just be noise.
1: No, and I actually went back and re-listened to the interview and just feel like a college kid. I need to go take some more notes before I reflect and offer any sort of, <laughs> of additional Absolutely,
2: <laughs> yeah. You're absolutely right about that.
1: So anyways, I felt like maybe an appropriate way to close out this episode would be with some of George's words.
2: From, good good idea.
1: Yeah, from a post that he put up on social media in the last couple of weeks. And he says, for our part, sympathy for human life cannot discriminate. In our private prayers and public policies, we must remember all who suffer and work for a just peace.
2: It takes us all. And that's a good way to end the episode this week. So... Until next week, ladies and gentlemen, keep living good faith. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture.
1: Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond
2: 5 and we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org.